Aalto University Podcast. This is Cloud Reachers podcast and I'm Tommy Kauppinen. Today, Heather Bird, uh, thank you for being here uh, for this episode of Cloud Reachers. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is a great pleasure. I know that we have been uh, planning this for quite some time already, but now finally this is uh, this is actually happening today. So I would like to start from um, with a simple question. So I know that you have recently joined the Link Research Lab at the University of Texas at Arlington. So can you share more, more about this move and uh, your activities there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, recently I've been attending uh, a bunch of NSF-funded workshops, all all focused on educational innovation, um, trying to understand um, where where is educational research headed um, and what is needed to support that research, um, those directions. Um, so it's been really interesting to uh, attend a bunch of different workshops around really a vast number of educational topics um, in different places around the US, um, getting to meet uh, researchers and practitioners and um, people in the industry as well that are all doing some really great thinking about where are we right now um, in education and where do we need to be going? So a lot of that has focused on like online learning, digital learning, um, but there is also a lot of really interesting work happening, um, thinking about, you know, how do we change education in the real world? How do we better help our students gain those, you know, quote unquote, 20th, you know, 21st century skills, um, those soft skills, those skills that are um, really hard to teach, but also that can't ever be replaced by a machine. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been really fascinating and a really great learning experience, honestly, for me to talk to these experts and hear from them and get to engage with them and and see where they think the future of education is going. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's very interesting. I um, so you are referring to things like communication, critical thinking, yes, creativity, and yeah, yes. So what is what is your insight like uh, from uh, talking with experts? Like, how can we actually? <laughs> actually ever teach those uh, by online learning or is it something where we should uh, kind of make a mix of face-to-face discussions and then perhaps some online content? Well, I think there's, I think it's kind of taken as a given that people are going to learn in a myriad of different settings. So for some people, it for some educators and researchers, um, in the topics or the the students that they're interacting with, it really makes sense to be in person. So for instance, maker spaces, they're 
usually pretty in person, unless you have a maker space that is more digital, more thinking about programming, computer science. So there are just some things that work really well in person. And then there are um, some other skills or um, just for some communities that it just really works better to have things digitally. So for instance, maybe you're trying to help students who are um, in a particular landscape, like maybe a desert landscape, and you're trying to get them to understand uh, a different biome. Maybe you're trying to get them to understand what a forest is like in their science class. That's a great way of maybe um, doing some digital learning um, with another school that lives near a forest. And so you can have kids interacting across these two biomes where it would be far too expensive and unrealistic to you know, fly all the kids that live in a desert region out to you know a tropical forest or something like that. Um, so I think all of these educators are really coming from the understanding that students are going to learn in a myriad of ways. It's really about thinking about your target audience, thinking about your subject matter, and really finding the best tech to support that learning and those students. Um, so I, I think it's a given that it's going to happen in a lot of different ways. The question is, what way works best for you? That's uh, that's an excellent example. I mean, I mean, having uh, two classes, one living uh, in the forest or close to the forest, uh, uh, essentially talking to each other. So it's uh, it's beyond like I mean, kind of just watching videos, uh, perhaps about about uh, related a topic uh, to a topic uh, like like forest. But let's actually talk to people who should know more about this uh, this topic by by default. I mean, because they are living next to it. Right, and and that again develops these like twenty first century skills of collaboration. Like, let's be honest, the world of work nowadays you have to collaborate a lot across long distances, right? Like you and I, you know, we keep um, coming back and having collaborative ideas together and connecting, even though, you know, we're half a world apart. That's just how it works. So why not have kids have that experience? Learn how to collaborate with with kids halfway across the world. Um, I think it's an important skill set there, collaborating, using digital technologies, but then also, you know, learning their science material and engaging in it. So it's great when you can have a, a mashup of, of all these critical pieces coming together in one situation. Mm. And also letting them to create something together. Yeah. Uh, learning how to create also from another perspective yes yeah excellent idea yeah that's that's very good because i mean i mean we have i don't know how many thousands of kindergartens we have thousands of millions of schools um so we have a lot of lot of opportunities to to actually do it of course we have time zone differences and so on but but those are just you know it's it's perhaps even opportunities rather than obstacles yeah and i i think what it takes is someone seeing that opportunity. Like, have you heard of um, 
people using Skype, and there's actually a whole like arrangement where native speakers in their language who are maybe saying try to uh, learn English are connected with, you know, native English speakers, and they have a conversation. What a great opportunity right there, but someone had to, had to think of it, had to think like, how can I get a bunch of people, a bunch of native speakers of one language, how can I connect them to people who want to learn that language? And so, you know, they've been doing that for a while. I don't know the particular company or anything that does that. But when I heard about that, I thought that's just a great use of technology and really supporting people's learning. What a great idea. We just have to, you know, come up with those like great ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Like tandem I mean, learning. I mean, yeah. I can teach you perhaps Finnish and you teach me English and, yeah. <laughs> you know, we both learn. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's do it. Hey, if you if you think, uh, Heather, if you think yourself, uh, I mean, personally, so um, so what drives you in in teaching and learning or research? Uh, can, can you share perhaps something about your latest findings and um, what do you think is, is very interesting to, to do exactly now of this this time? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, what drives me primarily in my research is um, I've been interested for a very long time in in spatial cognition. Um, so I I got exposed to what spatial cognition kind of was um, in my bachelor's degree, and I I was drawn to it because it was something that you know uh, doesn't get talked about a lot in psychology classes. So um, I was doing my bachelor's degree in psych. Um, I wanted to join a lab and get some research experience. And so I heard about this spatial cognition um, from a lab that I wanted to be involved in. And so let me back up. Spatial cognition um, is really about understanding um, how people think about and move through the world. So a great example is navigation. How do people learn to get from one place to another? It seems like such a default, easy thing, but it's it's not. Um, how do people know, um, like, let's say here I am in Texas. Could I point to where Paris is? That's a really hard question. Um, but some people could figure that out and be reasonably accurate and some people would have no idea. Um, so I started studying navigation and a sense of direction and I just found it to be a very unique topic. Uh, a lot of people in cognition and spatial, co- and sorry, in cognitive psychology Um, they focus a lot like on learning and learning's become a, a new focus of mind or uh, problem solving or um, a lot of the or memory. And for me, spatial cognition kind of connects to all of those. You know, you've got to learn a new space. You've got to uh, problem solve. How do I uh, fold a piece of paper and make it into a swan? That's a very spatial question. Um In terms of our memories, uh, some people have heard of a mnemonic device called um, the memory palace. And that's basically where you memorize a a spatial location, like your house or maybe your favorite museum. And then what you do is you tuck 
things that you need to remember into a specific place. And so that's really all about connecting uh, your spatial memory, your memory of a location with a memory of maybe like your, your grocery list. And so that's been a really big connector throughout my research. Um, and it's, it moves into some of my teaching and my, my learning as well. Um, is just this idea of spatial cognition. What is it? How do we do it? And really, how do people differ in this? A lot of science likes to focus on the average. You know, you get a whole group of people to do something, and then you average all their scores together. But I think what's really fascinating is the people that are on the tail end. You know, in the pointing to Paris example, what What's going on in the minds of people who are pointing the opposite direction from Paris, maybe? You know, what what are they thinking about? Something led them to point that way. Um, and then conversely, what about the people that can do it? I think that's a really hard task. Uh, I certainly couldn't do it. So what are those people thinking about that can do that task? So I've also really been fascinated by differences, how people approach problems differently, how people approach their learning differently. And that is another kind of thread that's kind of um, weaved itself throughout my career. That's, I mean, you mentioned so fascinating examples. I mean, you mentioned about the kind of learning, I mean, when, when placing different things to memorize uh, to different places. I've been using that for some time mm -hmm. now and uh, I can't remember, it might have actually come from you, uh, this idea, but but uh, I've been using it for language learning, French, German, different words and uh, placing them to different places on my bike route and I, it really helps. It's it's amazing. It works. Yeah, it, it really does. It's it's surprising. It takes, it takes a lot of work, um, but then it sticks. And that's, I think that's very fascinating as well. It's like sometimes you really have to work hard at remembering something, at making a connection, building that connection from different angles, but then all of a sudden it'll stick. And, and that's really what yeah. you're hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's all, it also changes the locations to actual places. I mean, that's, that are, you know, I mean, that are actually meaningful for you. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, you can't build a memory palace based on an imagined place, or it's very hard to, or it's very hard to build a memory palace in a place that you don't have a very detailed memory for. So like when people when people get started using a memory palace, typically what you do is you use your, your childhood home, a place where you spent a lot of time um, and you know every little nook and cranny in that house. Because the more detailed memory you have of that place, the more spots there are to put something. So if you have a vague memory, it is very hard to put a lot of things into those locations because maybe you'll just have kitchen 
But if it's your childhood home, maybe you have, oh, that there's a little crevice in between my fridge and, you know, the wall. Maybe I can stick a memory there, right? I mean, it's a memory. It's, it can fit anywhere. So if you have a really detailed memory, you can start sticking those memories into really tiny spots because why not? It's just a memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amazing. It's, so it's like, I mean, we are, I mean, we have a lot of uh, talks, of course, about virtual reality and uh, augmented reality, mixed reality, immersive, uh, you know, kind of experiences. But I mean, memory is something that we are carrying ourselves with us all the time. Yes. So basically we close our eyes and, uh, and uh, we just use our imagination and memory to create worlds. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think it's amazing just how spatial our memories are. You, I at least, can't think of a single memory that isn't associated with the place it happened in. Right? There, there's always like, Absolutely. you know, yes, over time things become more vague and maybe you just know, you know, the English word for something. You just know it. But when you have a, a detailed memory, it always, it's always has a location. It has a place where yeah. you, you, that memory happened, that thing happened. Um, and so our memories are incredibly spatial. And I think what the memory palace helps you do is capitalize on that spatiality in order to make your memory stronger. And one of the things that they say about memory palaces as well, and I don't want to like, you know, suck up the whole time on this, but uh, one of the things that helps is to really feel something, react to something, associate that memory with a lot of other sensations. So first you put it in a location. Can you give it a smell? Can you give it a feeling? Like, does it make you feel something? Is that a happy memory? Is that something that's funny? Funny memories will help you remember things. So say you're trying to remember like cards or something. If you can make an association between the card you're trying to remember um, and the location. If you can make something funny or something weird or something that maybe disgusts you, like, uh, oh, maybe there's some like moldy cheese or something, um, then as many senses as you can attach to that memory when you put it there, the more crazy associations you can make with that little thing that you're trying to remember and put it there, then the stronger your memory will be. Because memory is all about building connections, right? And the more connections and the more senses you can associate with that, then the stronger that memory is going to be. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like, uh, like actually creating a story around that, I mean, whatever you want to memorize. Yeah. You mentioned uh, emotions, but also it's like kind of bringing the twist into the story or conflict and resolution. So something that makes you, I mean, well, remember it. Yes. Yes. Like what, who were involved and uh, where did it take place this event? And, and uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Hey, well, one thing that uh, struck me uh, when you mentioned about the feeling of uh, directions, uh, 
So, um, like you mentioned, some people simply cannot point where Paris is uh, from uh, from Texas, and some can. But uh, is this? What do you think? Is this something that basically anybody could learn? Kind of learning to learn. Can we actually help people to learn better? For example, uh, spatial uh, thinking. I absolutely think that you can. I think you can learn anything. I think just about anyone can learn just about anything. The The difference is how long it's going to take, how much effort it's going to take. Um, but our brains are incredible machines. We are so good at learning It just might take some people longer or maybe a different way that they need to learn something. But I think that we definitely can learn just about anything. And that includes spatial thinking. So I would say some people might say like, oh, I don't have a good sense of direction or, oh, I don't I don't like, you know, doing like Tetris or um mentally rotating something in my head. I don't I don't like it. And and that's fine. D- different people have different things that they like to do or that they don't like to do. But that doesn't mean that you can't learn to do it. Or that you can't uh capitalize on some of the strategies that people who are good at it um that they use. So For instance, if you have a poor sense of direction, you think, oh, I get lost all the time. I have to have my GPS with me. I have to have my phone with me all the time. I would say, you know, start taking moments when you're using your GPS, when you're using your phone to just like look around a little bit more pick your head up and look for distinct landmarks. Is there maybe a a really interesting building? Is there um, maybe like a road sign that's like twisted or something that's like unusual? Can you start taking the time to notice and make connections with landmarks. You know, think about starting to build the route you're taking maybe as a memory palace, right? You're you're trying to really learn that route. And then what you can do is once you feel really comfortable with that route, with that place, start seeing how that particular route connects to other things. Like, oh, only a street over is this coffee shop I always love to go to. Or just find new places. And if you can, walk or bike to those places. Because in a car, you don't get the same motor feedback And so that's, I think, really fascinating. And what people might not realize is that we get a lot of spatial information from our bodies. And sometimes that can really help people try to get more information. 
you know, can I walk from this place to another place? How do I do that? Learn that route. Travel it back and forth so you know how does it look going one way versus the other way. You know, can I, can I still see that sign that's all crooked from the route back? Or can I only see it, the route going there? And just being curious can, I think, really help you. Um, mm. Some people are, are going to always struggle with it. It's going to be harder for them. But I think there are some little techniques and tricks and um, things that you can pick up to, to help help you feel more comfortable and help you feel like you can get from one place to another. Maybe like when your phone has died or you only have 10% left and you're like, oh, I really got to save that battery power. But maybe now then you have, have those landmarks, know where you need to turn. Um, and so you can feel more comfortable. So yeah, I think definitely spatial thinking, spatial abilities, are things that we can train, we can help make ourselves better at them. It just sometimes takes doing these things that you feel uncomfortable or feel like you know, you're not good at, but just keep doing them until you feel more comfortable with them. Mm, amazing. I, I so much love this uh, example because I mean, um, I'm not sure if I ever share you, but um, my one of my favorite hobbies is to trying to get lost. Mm -hmm. And the and the rules um, I created back when I was living in Paris for one summer. So the idea is that okay, well, it's kind of going from A to B, but then uh, the rules are as follows: so you can look at the map just once, then you just put the map away, oh. and then you try to do it. Of course, you cannot easily do it, so you kind of get lost. You try to get lost even because, I mean, how do you learn anything new if you don't get lost? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I've, I've experienced so fantastic things uh, by just trying to get lost. Yeah, and I think people who have a poor sense of direction, they so fear getting lost. But the reality is, is that a lot of people who, you know, say they have a good sense of direction, they have a good sense of direction because they do exactly what you just described. They get lost yeah. and they're okay with it. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely don't get lost in like a, a, a neighborhood you don't feel comfortable with. Don't get <laughs> lost when like you have no way of, you know, getting yourself unlost. But like be able to take some calculated risks because that's the only exactly. way to test yourself and to like know if you really know it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I learned to observe the nature and environment, urban surroundings and, uh, and actually find your way even without the map. And then on the way, actually, it's not like really the goal is not to get to the B, but to, you know, experience the places in between A and B. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're in a new city, you're just exploring, you know, you know, you have a, a limited amount of time. It, it's a great idea to just go try to get lost a little bit because you, you're gonna, you know, find so many gems, find new places, and might as well, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm going, for example, to Santa Barbara next uh, Tuesday. Nice. Uh, so uh, last time I was there, I tried to get lost uh, from the same hotel. 
And I managed to get lost, but then, you know, after a while I found a fantastic garden that I would have never ever found otherwise. Yes. I mean, just by Googling or, I mean, it's it would, wouldn't be a possible. Exactly. Thing. Yeah. So, I mean, life is learning. Yes. Hey, uh, talking about learning and turning points. So uh, if you think of yourself uh, about your, I mean, life or career, so is there something that have made you think differently about Well, anything, spatial thinking, about learning, about anything. Yeah, um, I think, and, and this is kind of connected to your previous question, I think one of the big kind of shifts that happened in my career kind of came as I left graduate school at the University of California in Santa Barbara. So I, I know Santa Barbara very well. I think I know the garden you're talking about. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely. I started a postdoc at Tufts and there, instead of kind of focusing on kind of outdoor environment, sense of direction, uh, what I did was I made it a shift to working on spatial training um, and how that could actually help children learn math. So we kind of talked about, can you train um spatial skills. And I said, yeah, I, I think so. But I also think that there might be a connection, and this is backed up by research, there seems to be a connection between um, spatial skills and, um, and STEM learning. So at the time, there was actually a lot of news reports, um, there was a lot of talk about the STEM skills gap. And this is in the U.S. where um, basically there were a bunch of reports that said uh, the U.S. needs thousands upon thousands more um, STEM-trained, so science, technology, engineering, math, trained individuals than there are people currently studying STEM fields or even people that will go into STEM fields. And this was kind of labeled as a crisis because they were predicting that in the future there would not be enough technically skilled workers in the U.S. in order to meet the hiring demands of U.S. companies. But going back to the point I made a little bit earlier, we were also learning um, as researchers more and more how spatial skills connect to STEM learning. So there was this very um, interesting set of studies that basically said that, you know, spatial skills are predictive of things like whether you will major in STEM, whether you will get a career in a STEM field, um, how successful you will be in publishing in STEM. And so you kind of put these two things together. There's a STEM skills gap, but we know that spatial skills are important for STEM. It really makes you think, well, can we do something in terms of training young people um, in spatial thinking in order to maybe inspire them or maybe to help them feel more comfortable in STEM fields, more capable, um, that they will end up majoring in STEM. Um, and so what we did 
was in our lab, we focused on elementary students for a couple of reasons. Um, we wanted to understand if spatial training could help elementary students' math learning. And so we did that because we figured there's there's been a push for interventions in high school and college in order to like retain students in STEM fields or um, help them to major, to pick a, pick a major in a STEM field. But we kind of figured that that might be too late, that it might be better to really help students as they're developing um, there are really fundamental basic skills in STEM. So in elementary school, that's usually your science and your math um, to help them at that stage so that maybe later on they would major in STEM. But also, interestingly enough, there's not a lot known about spatial thinking in elementary students. So there's a lot of people who have focused on uh, spatial thinking of like infants, you'd be amazed at how much infants think spatially. Um, they're they're doing a lot of exploring, especially when they're when they get mobile and they're crawling around. Um, and then there's a lot of focus on high school, college age, but there's a huge gap. So um, elementary students and elementary math seem like a, a a great kind of area to study. Um. But also, I kind of really connected to um, this research area on kind of a very personal level. And so this is kind of another a turning point for me, but more uh, personally. Um, I kind of had an epiphany about um, how I learn best in math when I was in elementary school. So it turns out that in the summer between my grades three and four, my family moved, so I had to change schools. But that also happened to be the summer I got glasses. So I arrived at a new school in my glasses, and I instantly got labeled a nerd as smart. They didn't know anything about me, but I had glasses, so I was smart. Amazing. <laughs> 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 But I mean, these are not things I ever thought about myself. I mean, I was a pretty average kid, you know. Um, I didn't think I was necessarily the, the smarty pants in the classroom or anything like that. Um, but over that grade four year and being labeled smart um, kind of came with this really negative idea, this, this bad idea that Smart people are just smart, you know? Smart people are smart because they can just do everything and anything super easy. It doesn't require any work for them because they're smart. Um, more recently, you've probably heard this called a fixed mindset. Um, there's a lot of talk about fixed versus growth mindset these days. Um, at, in grade four, I didn't know anything about that. Um, all I knew was this idea that Intelligent people don't struggle. If you're smart, you just get stuff. Things come naturally to you. Mm -hmm. You don't need to grow. You don't need to do anything to be intelligent. You just are, right? So with this mindset, um, I ended up hitting a wall in my grade five math. 
So I remember our teacher setting up this multiplication, uh, your multiplication test, um, kind of this like challenge. She like put them all up on the wall you're, from your, from your um, one times tables to your 12 times tables were all on this big wall. And it was, it was this challenge to see who could get to the end first. Um, so basically everyone started at the ones and what you had to do is you had to pass three versions of the ones times tables, the quiz, um, in order to progress to the next times table. So I remember it being a real challenge because there was a whole page of problems and you had to do the whole page of problems in like a minute or two. So it was really time intensive. I mean, in grade five, you should definitely know all your times tables, but what she was trying to get us to do was to know them fast and thoroughly, right? So that was kind of, in, in retrospect, that was what her, her goal was. Um, and you had to get something like really high, like 80 or 90% on the quiz in order to go on to the next, or maybe even 100. Anyways, because I was smart, I didn't study at all for these quizzes because I figured I could just do them, no problem, right? I should be able to beat all the students very fast. Um, but after a couple of weeks, it was pretty painful to see everyone else being on their sixes and sevens times tables, and I was still stuck on three. For some reason, I just couldn't get past three. <laughs> um, and students started teasing me about it, because clearly, I, I mean, I wasn't smart. And basically it, it had this, I had a crisis. I realized that I needed to do something different. This idea that I was just smart and I could just breeze by and, and never have to study and never have to try was wrong. And it was painfully clear that it was wrong. Um, so right then I changed my entire approach to learning. I started studying. I tried memory tricks. Um, I... I would try anything and everything to like learn something. Um, and you know, I, I did pass my times, my 12 times tables. I got through all of it, um, but I definitely didn't beat everyone. Um, it was really hard for me. I really struggled, but I learned that being smart is about struggling, you know, is about getting lost sometimes is about falling down and making mistakes, but about getting back up and trying it a different way. Um, and it was that effort that made you smart and it helped get you even smarter. Um, so for me, that was a big flip from this kind of fixed mindset to a growth mindset, a growth mindset being you have to, you know, you have to try you have to work really hard at things that are hard for you in order to get smarter and better at them and that you can develop intelligence. Intelligence isn't just something you have that takes no work. Intelligence takes work. And so for me at my postdoc at Tufts, this idea that you know maybe we could help students um, take a different approach to math, you know, and a lot of times math is kind of taught like how I experienced it. You just like memorize a multiplication table, but there's been this push in the U S um, 
with Common Core math, with a lot of big changes in, in policy and stuff, to really get students to think more creatively about math, to think about math in different ways. There's lots of different ways to solve a, mul a multiplication problem. There are matrices and there are all sorts of different fun um, tips and tricks that you can use to solve a multiplication problem. And the more of these techniques that students learn, the better they are at math. So I felt like spatial thinking was another way that we could help students approach math differently. Can they see how a piece of paper, when you fold it together, ends up making fractions? right? You had one whole piece of paper, you can fold it, you know, seven times and you can get, you know, then eight small pieces of paper. Can they learn fractions that way? Can they um, better understand visualizations that you use in math, drawings and stuff of math? Um, can they better understand those when they're taught about spatial thinking? Um, but also there are lots of students who are good at thinking spatially, but that your typical um, elementary school curriculum doesn't allow them to explore their spatial thinking. Um, they might not feel that they are good at things like language arts or uh, reading or writing, but that they're really good at finding their way around. They're really good at... at um, mentally rotating things, at manipulating things in their minds, at figuring out origami or um, things like this. Um, but they don't get the opportunities to show off those skills. So maybe what we can do with those students is help them see the connection between those skills, those spatial skills, and their math their math homework, their science homework. Um, there is so much spatial thinking that happens in math and engineering and science, um, but you only sometimes really become aware of those spatial aspects once you get to like high school or college level math um, or um, STEM topics. That's where you really see it. Organic chemistry and physics and, and things like that are so spatial. Understanding the anatomy of the brain and how it all fits together, that's so spatial. So why not help students get those kind of um, spatial skills up and them used to using them when they're young so that they have those skill sets in their back pocket when they really need them in college. Um, so I think that um, this kind of arc of research of connecting spatial thinking in STEM is very intriguing to me um, in my academic career, but I think it's also very intriguing and personal to me because I've had some experiences struggling with, you know, um, with my STEM learning. So I, I liked how you know, it kind of, it was kind of like a perfect storm. Everything kind of like uh, came together really well in that research topic. Wow, that's a, that's a fantastic story. I can connect to that in many, many ways. If I, hey, uh, one, one question I always wanted to ask right. you, and uh, this is a timely question. So, I mean, what did you personally learn 
online last time? Right. <laughs> it's a very timely question. Perhaps it changes the answer every day, but <laughs> what would you answer? Well, for? I've been trying to focus on a lot of my um, technical and analytic skills um, using online learning. So um, I recently um, learned the programming it's kind of a programming language R, um, and then I've I've also been trying to learn Python recently. Uh, both of those um, languages can really help with my analyses and, and running experiments. Excellent. Yeah, those are. I mean, there's so many fantastic tutorials about those uh, now now online. Yeah, I, I I completely see your point, and I, it makes sense also. I mean, it's. Uh, and we also research and teach we should be more and more kind of Renaissance people. I mean, yeah. <laughs> at least nowadays it's possible more than perhaps after Renaissance ever. Yeah, I think I think people should be pushing forward in, you know, if I want to be a good researcher and a good uh, mentor and educator to um, to my students, I I want to know the latest and greatest in analytic techniques. I want to know how to do this. I mean, I really wish when when I was doing my bachelor's degree that I even took a, you know, an intro to programming course or something like that, um, because so much, this has become the norm almost. You know, you have to know computer programming languages. <laughs> you have to know how to do these kinds of things. And so I try to impart that to my students. I'm like, I'm learning R, so guess what? You're learning R, and we're all going to learn it together, <laughs> and we're all going to make lots of mistakes, and that's okay because we're going to learn it. And so that's the approach that I yeah, take. Yeah, it's exactly. I mean, if you don't get lost, then how do you learn? Then exactly yeah. right. If you never make mistakes, how do you learn? Yes. Yeah. So um, you you already said a lot about the about a lot about your vision, and also like how how do you. Uh, have built it, but uh, can you summarize uh, what kind of vision do you have for the future of online? And uh, of course, including future of learning in places and basically anywhere. Right. Um, so I think, I think kind of, kind of like what I, I said before, I think there are so many great tools and techniques and methods of, of teaching people. Um, that I, th I really want to see people be, educators be very mindful of those tools and those techniques and really figure out what works best for the group of students that they're serving, for the topics that they're trying to teach, what are the learning objectives and, and how might you best accomplish that learning objective with the range of tools that are out there. Um, and, and just really being thoughtful about that. There's, there's so many great resources out there. There's so many, um, great different ways of like, oh, you, do you want to do blended learning? Do you want to do online learning? Uh, do you want to um, have collaborative activities? Like really to think about who are your students? What are they being taught? And how can you best use technology to teach them that? Um, I think there are just so many great options of how to learn online or digitally um, 
And so I want to see a place where um, everyone is served, where anyone who wants to learn anything can find a range of options in order to learn that. Um, some types of education are better for some people. Some types of education aren't. So like, for instance, this is very vague, I realize. I'll give an example. Um, f- for instance, there's there's been, there's become a really great understanding that the traditional um, college student doesn't exist anymore. This idea that a young person will come straight up high school and go into college and, uh, you know, not have any real financial responsibilities um, other than, you know, making their way through school. They can, you know, be in school kind of nine to five, etc. It doesn't exist. You know, there are very few people for whom this this is a reality. A lot of people have, you know, a lot of different life situations, you know, Um, maybe they have little brothers and sisters that they have to support, or maybe they have a family or, you know, um, maybe they have to work nine to five and they need to take courses in the evenings and the weekends. Maybe they've had a career for 40 years and now they're coming back to try to learn. So there are just a lot of different realities of people's lives. And so the everyday kind of typical model of education has to change to support, you know, that new student. And that new student can be any age, any background from, you know, have any number of things happening in their life, but learning has to fit in there somehow. Um, and so what can we do to help those students? I've seen a big push focused on um, inclusive learning, making sure that learning can be uh, supported for everyone. And I really hope that that is a big push that continues. How do we make sure that we offer the best learning experiences for the most amount of people possible? And I hope that that is the future of education. Wow, that was a great, great summary. Uh, I I so agree with everything that you say. So lifelong learning, continuous learning, inclusive learning. It's a very, very good summary. Um, Final question. And we we plan to ask this from all guests. guests. Um, So, I mean, our episode and uh, the whole... um, podcast is called uh, Cloud Reachers, um, even like online or dream, reaching out dreams or reaching out clouds uh, and online. So if you think about your field, who is this kind of cloud reacher in your own field? Oh, I knew this question was coming, Tommy, and I, and I, had, a, I had a hard time thinking of a specific person. So I'm going to give you something a little vague, but I think, uh, I think it might be helpful. I, in going to these workshops um, and talking to a lot of people in educational innovation, I think that there are a ton of people out there in the world doing amazing things for education. 
and they are sometimes in places you would never expect them. Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I didn't expect it. But I think these people are like the unsung heroes of education. They are um, they are usually directly educating people. Um, they are, um, let me give another example. Uh, I've met librarians who are, you know, bringing in maker spaces to their universities. I've met, uh, they've like built connections to research, to industry. I've met um, people that are part of nonprofits um, that are doing amazing things, trying to, to connect with people that, that, um, uh, in, in just really cool ways. Um, I, um, I've met some people from uh, museums that are trying to, um, help people that might not be able to actually physically go to their museum, still have great online learning experiences related to their collections. That's really cool. Uh, I've met people from radio stations that built like professional development courses for teachers all around digital media. That was so cool to hear. Um, and like companies and stuff like that as well that are really thinking deeply about how to support lifelong learning, especially um, as career shifts and retraining becomes the norm. So I think there are a lot of people doing amazing work in education um, and they're all over the place. Um, they're in places where you might least expect them, but they're doing fantastic work trying to, trying to help like a range of learners learn like a wide variety of things or connect to resources that they might not have access to. And so I don't know that I can like point to a specific person that's like leading the charge. I think there are a lot of people leading the charge and they're doing it in their own unique way and trying to support, you know, the populations um, that they serve. Wow, that that answer gives us so much hope, uh, doesn't it? I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of enthusiastic people around that uh, we should, I mean, give uh, also uh, you know credit and resources yes. and, and actually believe that they are changing the education. Yeah, for good. Yeah, I mean, people on the ground, they're leading the charge. I mean, sure, academics do like a lot of great work, and you know. Um, we innovate a lot, but I think those people that are on the ground working with students, there um, there are some people that are just doing such amazing work, um, and I really applaud them. Excellent. Hey Heather, yes. um, thanks so much for joining this episode of of Cloud Reachers. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this was such a great experience. So um, all the listeners, uh, this is uh, this was Cloud Reachers episode again and uh, I'm Tommy Kaupin. Hear you next time.